in 2005, I found a way to bring these passions together, the passion for music and entertainment, psychology and research, and um, marketing and advertising. Uh, and I heard about um, this thing called audio branding. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. I'm your host, Jody Krangel, and this podcast will discuss just how sound influences our behavior. I generally talk about this in the context of advertising and marketing, but there are other places this is important too. I really feel that it plays a much more important role in our lives than maybe we realize. So let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Steve Keller. I have been looking forward to this interview for months now, and I think when all of this is done, you'll understand why. My next guest is Sonic Strategy Director for Pandora US and is recognized as one of the leading experts in the field of sonic strategy and identity. His work explores the ways music and sound impact consumer perception and behavior. He's the recipient of the iHeart Media Scholarship for Leadership in Audio Innovation and is currently completing an executive MBA through the Berlin School for Creative Leadership, examining how brands can more effectively measure and predict returns on audio investments. You can follow him on Twitter at audioalchemist underscore, don't forget the underscore, or find him at studioresonate.com, and we'll be talking more about Studio Resonate in this interview. Please welcome Steve Keller. I wanted to start off with a kind of background on this, and I wanted to ask you where you got into this. I mean, where did you develop the interest in sound and how it affects us? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's really just a combination of my entire life's journey. So attempting to condense that um, into a, a short story, uh, basically there are three passions in my life. So the first one is, um, is music. I started taking piano lessons when I was six years old. I picked up a guitar, started writing songs in high school because it was a fairly effective dating tool. Um, but <laughs> okay. I never thought of it as, uh, as, as a career. Um, and and I was also interested in what makes us tick uh, in our behavior, in emotions. Um, I seem to be rather adept at uh, you know being that that friend that had a good listening ear. So uh, when I went to university, um, I studied psychology. So that's the other passion in mm -hmm. my life uh, is kind of understanding things around um, behavior, around motivation, around emotion and meaning. Uh, and so I graduated with my degree in psychology, and the game plan at that point was I was going to head off to grad school, work on a master's and a PhD. And uh, while I was sitting out for a year working um, in a couple of jobs, one with kids with severe behavioral disorders and the other um, doing research and statistics for a community mental health organization, uh, I was still playing music in coffee houses. And there was never an aha moment. I think I just gave myself permission to do something different. So I headed off to uh, Nashville, and um, in Nashville, uh, found very quickly that there were people that could write songs much better than I could, who could <laughs> sing much better than I could, uh, who could play their instruments much better than I could, and um, I was about to jump off a cliff uh, when, a, when a friend pulled me back, uh, and I dug a little bit deeper and found that I had um, a talent for production. Um, 
and my break into the Nashville music scene uh, was doing dance mixes of country songs. Whoa. Okay. Uh, so I was, I was one of two guys in Nashville that knew how to do that when there was this phenomenon that just blew up of people going into dance clubs and uh, doing line dances and the DJs were like, we don't have anything to play. Uh, so um, I started working with uh, a lot of artists like uh, Tim McGraw and Winona and Reba and Leonard Skinner and even Neil Diamond. Wow. Um, and, uh, and in the process of doing that, um, I also started composing music for commercials. Aha. Uh-huh. And it was through that I kind of discovered my third passion, which was really just marketing and advertising. Uh, I really loved branding. Um, I wrote uh, a lot of copy. Um, and so uh, in 2005, I found a way to bring these passions together, the passion for music and entertainment, psychology and research, and um, marketing and advertising. Uh, and I heard about um, this thing called audio branding. And most of the interesting work was being done in Europe. Um, and so I got exposed to uh, a a few of the uh, folks that were really kind of at the forefront of it at that time. Uh, a lot of it was coming out of the design world and taking design principles and applying them to sound. Um, and so I started my own company, um, IV, and uh, that uh, was the place where I kind of workshop and experimented. And eventually um, it grew into more of a consultancy um, and I found myself kind of circling back into academia, uh, doing a lot more um, research around psychology and sound and the way sound shapes our perception and behavior. Um, and a couple of years ago, I got drawn into Pandora's orbit. And um, How did that just... happen? Can you, can you elaborate a little? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I do a lot of speaking on a lot of stages on this, this, this topic. Um, and so uh, I was actually part of a, a panel um, in Chicago, and uh, Laura Nagel, who at the time uh, was one of the creative directors um, and was leading some audio branding initiatives that they were starting to dip their toe into, was the moderator for that panel. Mm-hmm. And she and I just hit it off. And next thing I knew, I got invited to do a presentation in Oakland and then hey, can we do something in Chicago around the psychology of sound? And then it was, we're working on a program here, and we've kind of taken a lot of things out of your TEDx talk. Um, Would you work on the script? And eventually um, they hired uh, me and uh, an IV to work on developing the sonic identity for Pandora. Mm -hmm. And it was during that process um, that we really just realized we were in love with each other and it was time to put, put a ring on it. <laughs> well, that's um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I will I will have to say, um, you know, that I would not have stepped out of the role that I had um, at IV uh, and my own company um, if it were not for, for a place that, uh, you know, the, the people are tremendous. They're so talented. And I feel like here between the exposure to our creative teams and Studio Resonate, um, as well as the science teams, the sales teams, the research teams, it's just giving me the opportunity to take um, sonic um, identity and in a broader sense, sonic strategy to an entirely new level. So um, that's kind of my history 
in in as short of a way as I could tell it. So well, that's yeah. how I got here. There's a lot that goes into that. Wow. Um, so what does a sonic strategy director do exactly? I'm just I'm trying to sort of place that into like how much of the psychology are you using? Um, you know, it's obviously audio branding, but what does that do for Pandora? I'm just I'm curious. Well, well, essentially, you know, we we work with our clients all the time, um, particularly on the advertising side, in helping them, you know, kind of harness the power of sound for their effective advertising. Mm -hmm. And and my work here is to help us do that better on our platform. But more than that, to move beyond the platform and look at the power of sound in general um, to, to shape consumer perception and behavior um, and what are tools to make sound choices, and I mean that literally and figuratively. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so why are you choosing that voiceover? Why are you choosing that piece of music? And then, how can we attach KPIs and outcomes to that? How can we look at, um, you know, a return on our sonic investments and measure that? Um, you know, you're going to spend X amount for this license. Would you be better off creating an original piece of music? What's shared equity you're going to get there? And and really helping them make better decisions around that. So, so what I'm doing as a sonic strategist here is really trying to move the conversation about sound from the last thing in the process, which it often is, mm-hmm. to much earlier in the process and, and looking at its impact, not just in short-term sales activation, but over the long term in building um, brand recognition and affinity um, and, uh, and, and congruence um, and equity over the long run. Sure. Well, I mean, this is internet radio, so it's all theater of the mind, and you need to give the mind something to imagine, right? <laughs> yes. Um, but I think even beyond that, as I said, we're, we're kind of looking beyond the platform. So we're looking at not just in um, you know audio-only platforms like radio or streaming services, but also in experiences. How does the experience of a consumer at any touch point, whether that be is there a sound the product makes? Mm-hmm. Is there something that happens um, in an in-store experience or in some kind of experiential activation? Um, or, you know, God forbid somebody calls and gets put on hold. What do they hear there? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so uh, and, and, you know, the, the applications, the navigation sounds um, that are there. So re- it really is. Uh, understanding and mapping an entire ecosystem for a brand and helping them understand that what they're talking about is not the the tactical creation of a sonic logo or a, or a brand theme or having a particular brand force voice. It's really understanding this is an entire system. So how do you manage that? How do you have guidelines in in place to make sure you've got consistent use across this system? Sure. How do you innovate and use sound in interesting ways? So it's a it's a pretty expansive um, undertaking, uh, and I think brands are just now starting to wake up to to the realities of uh, of of what they can do with sound. Sure. Do you have any case studies that you would mind talking about? Anything that you're particularly happy with that used all of these things across the board? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, at at Pandora with our Sonic P, as we call it. Um, you know, we're continually looking at ways um, even now to use that um, in, in interesting ways, not simply 
you know, on our platform or, or in our advertising, but from an experiential standpoint. So there are a lot of things that are in development there. I will say there's quite a few brands that, you know, have in used sound in interesting ways at different touch points. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any one brand that I would point to and say, they've done it all correctly. <laughs> sure. yeah. You know, we could point to Intel because, you know, that's a classic case um, and how everybody recognizes that. What's interesting to me is understanding the strategy and implementation um, that they use because they're a business-to-business brand. Um, and so they're not advertising uh, business, you know, to consumer. Uh, but what they did was um, they offered to pay for a portion of the media buy of vendors that were using Intel chips if they would add their visual and sonic logo. I see. Uh, and that's why people started hearing it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it and, makes sense. Uh, right, and, and gain the recognition. You've got brands like um, Coca-Cola, uh, now MasterCard, that are looking at unique ways of using their sonic properties, um, infusing it into different kinds of customer experiences, using innovation you know, in-store, at point of sale, um, You've got uh, other brands uh, that have found quite interesting ways to uh, look at um, getting to customer behavior, uh, you know, like like drawing attention. Um, All Good Fair Trade Bananas is a is a is a case that I think of where they used acoustical speakers um, in supermarkets. And as people got into the produce section, uh, they would stand in an area, hear a voice that would say, um, don't look around. Nobody else can hear me. This is your conscience speaking. You need to buy the fair trade bananas. You know, and, and something as simple as that, but seeing, you know, a 130% increase in banana sales when they were doing that promotion. I remember you mentioning this in your TED Talk, actually. Yeah, yeah so I can go on great. and on about these these kind of really interesting individual case studies. Um, but I, would, I will say uh, there's not one brand yet that I think is really consistently over time dedicated to looking at how they can build their brand sonically in the same way they've kind of devoted attention to copy, to visuals, to other aspects of brand identity. Yeah, I have noticed that, that people pay a really large amount of attention to their um, their visual brand. Right. You know, like they'll be completely uh, on point when it comes to every bit of Anything visual that you see from them has a certain color and a certain way it's put together, but they don't pay attention to the audio version of that at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I have a question for you about Studio Resonate. Sure. Um, because I know, like, is that the, that's the advertising end of Pandora? Is that what they call their... Well, Studio Resonate is, um, it's, uh, as we're describing it, it's a uh, audio-first creative consultancy that makes stuff. I see. Okay. Um, so, so we we really are, you know, looking at how can we become a trusted advisor for all things audio, mm-hmm. for um, our the brands and agencies uh, that are working with us, how to help them think about developing strategies to leverage sound, um, both on and off our platform, and in the process of that, um, we do create we create um, you know tens of thousands of ads uh, every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a voiceover artist, you're familiar with some of that uh, work. Yeah, just uh, a little. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, also um, on the, the sonic identity side, um, you know, we're, we're currently um, only working with a very few um, 
few amount of brands that that were particularly interested uh, in in developing sonic identities for them, but we're creating brand themes, sonic logos, brand navigation sounds um, as as a piece of that. So while our our focus is on um, the insights and the strategy, if you will, we also know that that clients very often need things made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the make stuff piece of Studio Resonate. So what have you made? <laughs> <laughs> what have we made? Yes. Um, well, we're uh, in the process of uh, working with uh, a couple of companies um, that I can't really talk about yet, but once it's rolled out, <laughs> sure. uh, we can. Um, some some major companies uh, in both um, uh, retail uh, and uh, consumer goods uh, areas. Um, we have quite a few companies um, that we're working on doing assessments for, mm-hmm. um, which is basically kind of uh, a, a sonic SWOT analysis, if you will, competitive audits, mapping out their ecosystems, um, giving them insights there. Uh, this this past uh, year, I was all over the country um, leading workshops, um, exploring sonic strategy sessions. Um, this next, uh, this, this year, 2020, um, in addition to the assessments, um, I've developed a master class. And so for some of our clients, we'll be doing uh, an all-day uh, intensive workshop wow. on um, you know, helping them be more educated, uh, where they can make better choices about sound. And if they are wanting to develop a sonic identity, how do they go about choosing the right partner? What are the questions that they ask? What do they need to, to look for there? Sure. And uh, then on top of that, kind of looking for interesting experiential pieces. Uh, last year, we worked with Propel. Um, kind of developing an experience for them. I was going to ask you about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the taste of Propel. Yes. Uh, and uh, you know, one of my passions is is gastrophysics, um, uh, which I've done uh, with a couple of researchers. Uh, one, Charles Spence, who heads the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. He's like the the godfather, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, guru of all of this. Um, and then Janice Wang, who uh, is now teaching at the Department of Food Science at uh, Aarhus University uh, in uh, Denmark. Mm-hmm. And uh, we worked with Propel to try and tease out um, what were what we call uh, sonically congruent um, soundscapes uh, with the taste of electrolytes, which is essentially sodium, and the taste of fruit, which is sweetness. And we found through research that we can actually uh, hack into your perception of flavor by what we're putting in your ears, not just what we're putting in your mouth. How cool is that? <laughs> so we, we developed some soundscapes. We created a, an app called the Flavor DJ. Um, and while people were drinking their Propel, they could move a fader to the electrolyte side um, or to the fruit side and actually change their perception of the, the sweetness um, of Propel. And it's just, you know, it's always amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's science, but it seems like magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to, you know, have people go through this experience and realize that they actually are, it does taste different. Um, but it's, it's basically a, we call it a cross-modal hack. It's playing with their senses in the same way that uh, a synesthete has um, their, their senses cross-wired in their brain. Sure. So when they smell something, they may actually hear it too, or they see something 
uh, there may be another sense that's triggered at the same same time. So we just play with that in a really natural way. Did you get any data about whether people preferred the saltier or sweeter taste? No, we we didn't go that deep into it. Um, <laughs> I was just you know, curious. <laughs> we, 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 what, what we found was that people who were super tasters that tended to really taste salt or sodium more um, did have more of a uh, increase in a perception of the, you know, perhaps the saltiness. Um, but for most people, uh, it was less that and it was more how it impacted sweetness. Mm -hmm. So on the fruit side, it just, the perception of sweetness was greatly enhanced. And on the electrolyte side, we just found that there was, you know, it, it, it just didn't taste as sweet. And when we've done similar work with chocolate, playing with sweetness and bitterness, um, you can do it, you know, we've done it with beer, with wine. Mm -hmm. There uh, is a, a chef uh, in London that I work with, um, Yosef Youssef, uh, Kitchen Theory, and uh, we've helped develop soundscapes that are designed to go with different um, courses, different meal uh, pieces. Um, and and that makes people taste differently? Yes. Is that, yeah? Yes. And one was a, a crunchy jellyfish dish oh. that we designed a soundscape to really kind of enhance um, some of the, the texture and the, the crunch. Mm -hmm. um, and that was ultimately written up in an academic journal for things that you could do to, to encourage people to eat uh, sustainable foods like jellyfish. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it can actually change our behavior. Certainly. Yeah, so a lot of things uh, in our brain result in the release of, of chemicals. Uh, and certainly from a physiological standpoint, that's one of the ways that, that sound impacts us. So one of those chemicals is dopamine. Dopamine is a chemical uh, that's very addictive. It, it happens when we do tasks or things that are really rewarding for us. And dopamine is really associated with music a lot. Songs that we hear that we really love that are tied to particular memories kind of release this dopamine and that's why we like listening to these songs over and over and over again it's interesting one of the pieces of research around dopamine suggests that we can get to a point where we don't even have to hear the song we just think about it and there's that little dopamine release one of the other chemicals that gets released uh, when listening to music is uh, oxytocin and oxytocin is one of the chemicals that makes us feel uh, warm, like we belong, like we're in an area where we can kind of calm down, we can trust things. And uh, this is particularly um, tied to synchronous movement, when we kind of move in time together, or when we're singing a song together. So you've got this oxytocin, you've got the dopamine, it's a very powerful chemical combination. And so if brands can harness that, coming up with a piece of music that everyone loves, loves to sing along to, becomes associated with the brand, there are these chemical responses uh, in the brain that we're not even aware of that really help build senses of trust, of loyalty, of appeal and familiarity and reward. Uh, and you know, we've, we've found that this can happen in a very short amount of time. You know, it can happen in seconds. Again, as you become familiar with something, you hear the first two notes of something, you know where it's going, and all of this happens. 
So it it really is kind of the science of um, you know understanding how we can tease out these uh, physiological responses in ways that are are very natural um, for us as humans because we're just wired that way. Sure. Yeah. You'd mentioned, I think, in a previous conversation we'd had that uh, you're doing a study that will appear in the Journal of Advertising Research. Um, I don't know if you've already done it already or if it's still in the works, um, but it was on how the perceptions around a piece of music change its perceived value for creative directors, which I guess would have <laughs> a lot of bearing on what you're doing right now yes. and what we just discussed. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the other uh, areas that I'm drawn to from a psychological standpoint uh, is behavioral economics, where we kind of look at the decision making process for, you know, why would we would buy things or why would we invest in certain ways or, or um, make, make some of the decisions and the choices uh, that we make towards certain products. And so uh, part of that research is very often looking at um, biases and how biases play into our decision-making process. So I wanted to look at biases that might be a little more systemic, that might exist within the advertising industry that could affect choices around music in particular. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we did in this study was we took um, pieces of music uh, and we played them for creative directors. And one piece of music, um, the creative director was told that this is from a debut artist, uh, maybe in the UK, off of a second album. It was used in a beer commercial. Another was, you know, here's a piece of music that was commissioned um, by a brand, fashion brand, created for um, the uh, commercial. Uh, and another piece of music um, was described as coming from a uh, music library and used uh, as a track in uh, an automotive commercial. So we had these different scenarios, and the trick in the experiment was that um, we would use the same pieces of music but simply change up uh, the description of the source, mm -hmm. whether it was coming from an artist, um, commissioned from a music house, or coming from a, from a library. And we asked them questions, you know, some of them were aesthetic questions around, um, you know, authenticity, uh, production values, um, quality uh, of the the music, and then we also ask them questions around um, willingness to pay. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if if they were to pay, um, you know, what would they expect to pay for this particular piece of music? And what we found, um, in some ways, not surprisingly, uh, was that it, whenever we told these creative directors and music supervisors that it was music from an artist. Uh, Across the board, significantly, they would rank um, that music as being more positive across every metric. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, so simply by telling them a different source changed their perception of it. So were they willing to pay more for that piece of music then? Oh, well, certainly. Um, you know, and that, uh, again, that's not surprising when you think of licensing. If you're licensing a track from an artist, mm -hmm. uh, you would expect to pay more. And you would be willing to pay more, certainly, if you thought that 
it was more authentic. It was better quality. There were, you know, all of these benefits to that. Sure. So the interesting twist for us was we thought, well, what would happen if we ask similar questions to people who are just the general public, general consumers? So we matched the demographics in terms of age, uh, gender, um, location, uh, to just see, uh, uh, you know, what the differences would be when we ask these quote-unquote non-professionals. And what we found was that the sources didn't make as much of a difference um, to these non-professionals. They either liked it or they didn't. Um, some things rose to the top um, regardless of the, the source. And the implications for this are not simply that um, there may be a bias in creative directors to move their brands towards um, uh, existing tracks or tracks from artists. Um, the, the problem is that um, it can have a real financial impact uh, because of the amount that a brand might be paying. Mm -hmm. And if indeed there really isn't as much of a benefit, I think the assumption you know, may be that, oh, you're using a piece of, of music from an artist or, or that's recognizable. There's uh, you know, some sharing of equity, if you will. That can be a real danger when you're getting into branding. I mean, yeah, it it can it can be a danger, but there's also you know the belief that well, if it's it's positive, you know, the brand's going to benefit from this shared equity, and that just may not be the case. Mm -hmm. So again, the study wasn't designed to say you know don't license music or don't use music from from artists, but just to say again, let's look at our choices. And let's look at the way our own biases from professionals may have a result in making a choice that um, not only isn't going to buy you as much in the long run, but may actually uh, cost you more and make it more difficult for you to see a return on that investment. Yeah, because it sounds like the people who were listening to that same music weren't having any of the same responses. Right. And so it wouldn't have mattered to them whether the music was purchased by an artist or not. <laughs> right. And and to be fair, um, you know, within this test, we weren't using pieces of music that anybody would recognize anyway. Sure. I mean, the, the reality was the pieces of music we were using were demos from uh, you know a, a commercial music house that were made that had never placed, so no one was familiar with them. Mm -hmm. um, could we have had a bigger impact if we had chosen uh, something from a recognizable artist? Uh, sure, that could have had some some thing you know so, uh, another impact on the study, and we talk about that in the in the limitations. But um, that's coming out. Uh, we're not sure probably in the next six or seven months. In, in academia, these kind of research projects move very slow. Yeah. But part of that is because it's peer-reviewed. Of course. Um, and it puts a whole other standard on it, which very often in our marketing research isn't there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, usually, uh, you know, most marketers, we're, you know, we're, we're doing studies, we're doing research, and, you know, we're doing the best that we can to be, to be um, scientifically sound and, and valid. But we're not always, you know, inviting peers to come in and, and poke holes in it. And that's what you do in academia. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. 
Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please take a moment to give the podcast a review. It's greatly appreciated and super helpful. Until next time.